So I've been asked to come in and speak. You all have been in a series about enduring faith. So my task this morning is to talk about enduring the faith of God's word. And why is it important to have God's word be the centerpiece of what it is that we believe? We live in a culture today, and you've heard me say this the last time I was here and then last year, that the centrality of God's word is lessened and lessened each day. And I don't mean by non-Christians. I mean by believers. The body of Christ seems to systematically and increasingly lower the significance of God's word. And so today... I wanted to speak to you all with this in mind and really just bring you into a particular passage or actually three words out of eight verses that bothered me for some time. So let me read this passage in 2 Timothy 4. I want to read this passage and then I want to tell you about these three words that bothered me because I didn't understand why Paul, inspired by God, so why God inspired Paul to put these three words, at least in my translation, in the scriptures. They have been confusing to me, or were at least at one point, and I want to share that with you all because it helped me understand the significance of God's word. Second Timothy 4 is the end of Paul's, it's his final letter. It's, it's seemingly the end of his life. He's writing to Timothy, a young a young man in the faith who he feels a fatherly kinship to. And he wants to instruct Timothy, he does this in two letters, on what does it mean to have enduring faith in the church? How do you take what I've taught you and teach others and train them so that the church of Jesus Christ, what he died for, one of the main reasons he died was not just to forgive the sins of people, but to establish a community of people that would take the forgiveness of the sin and the way that he taught us to live and carry it to the generations so that one day, thousands of years, you and I would say we actually believe the very same message that Jesus told these people some 2,000 years ago. So Paul is instructing Timothy to how to do this. But in his last words that we have recorded, he says some interesting things. And beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, 2 Timothy, I quote, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, 
There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, thank you for your word, for the, for the, for the realities in your word that make such sense to us, and for statements that seem odd to us. And though, and though today what I'm about to say may not initially seem odd to those who heard it, who hear this, it was odd to me until you began to really clearly explain why you inspired Paul to write this. Thank you for this warning for as, as Paul is talking to Timothy, you know that we're also, you are also talking to us. What you are commanding of Timothy in this passage is no different than what we are commanded to do as well. So while this letter was a private correspondence between two people based upon your grace brought together for the purpose of furthering the kingdom, may it come true this morning as we enter into a private discussion that we know by now at least includes us for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Within this passage, Paul, Paul does things like this. He, he starts off this particular chapter with this sort of final, making sure this final warning, but this, this, but not just a warning. He wants to make sure that Timothy and by default us understand the authority in which he is saying what he is about to say. So in verse 1, he jumps right in and he says these words, I charge you in the presence of God of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So he wants to make sure that Timothy understands that the significance of what he is about to tell Timothy to do is not just coming from Paul's own assessment of the world, but actually coming by the authority of Jesus Christ, who has been given by the Father the authority to judge the living and the dead. That this is the kingdom, and the king who asked me to speak on his behalf is now speaking to you. So in other words, what Paul is saying in verse 1 is take very seriously what I'm about to say to you in verses 2 and below. This has the authority of Jesus Christ associated with it. And so then he says, the first thing he tells him to do is sort of, here's your responsibility. Now he's talking to Peter, talking to uh, uh, Timothy, but this applies to us. He says, preach the word, verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season. And how do you preach the word? What's the effect of preaching the word? What should that do? And he lists these, these four things. Reprove. Rebuke. And exhort with complete patience and teaching. So here's your responsibility, Timothy, church. Reprove, adjust. We need to correct people. We need to correct ourselves and each other through the word. Rebuke, firmly correct, even discipline people from the word. Because this is what God commands. Exhort, encourage strongly one another to obey God's word. To obey. How? 
with complete patience. Why patience? Why patience? One of the things I like about certain translations, I'm not a King James guy. When I came into the church, I came to this church, it was King James only. And it was cool, but I couldn't get past the doth, hath, thou, thou. I couldn't get past that. But one word that I loved about the King James Version that I wish every translation would take is the way patience is translated in the King James Version. It's translated long-suffering. See, I like that. We should keep that. Let's bring that back to more modern English translations because long-suffering is exactly what God is calling us to do with one another and and even with him. So we have to be long-suffering at times with his promises because he has been long-suffering with our sinfulness. And so we have to be long-suffering with one another because God is long-suffering with us. He's patient with us. And so he tells them, yeah, you got to reprove. Sometimes you got to rebuke. You need to exhort, but do it with patience because you yourself have received it that way from God. God doesn't treat you the way your sins deserve. You shouldn't treat other brothers and sisters that way. And so this is what he's getting at, saying, preach the word. Here's the modes in which it should happen. And here's the character behind it. With patience. But then he says something in verse 3. He gives a concern. Here's the concern for why he says what he says in verse 2. So we give it the authority of what he's saying in verse 1. The what to do in verse 2. The what. But then here's the concern. The why. And it was in this passage. This, these two verses where these three words jumped out at me. That I thought, man, why is that a thing? And so he says this in verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, this is an interesting passage because Paul is also a Roman citizen. If you know the scripture, Paul was disciplined. He was beaten as a non-Roman citizen and he had rights as a Roman citizen to not be beaten publicly. So they actually had to come and escort Paul out of the city as a sign of publicly saying, we apologize for beating him because he was a Roman citizen. So Paul is well versed with the Roman culture. He's well versed with all of the cultures that are surrounding. In fact, in Acts 18, you'll find this one passage where Paul is talking about going to Corinth and Paul was so afraid to go because he saw the great idols that were in the city. He was so afraid to go to Corinth that God had to appear to him in a vision and say, do not be afraid. I have many in this city. Nothing, no one is going to harm you. So here the mighty apostle Paul was afraid. He's afraid to go preach the gospel because he recognizes the idolatry in the city. Paul knows this. So why is he telling Timothy that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, having itching ears, they will accumulate themselves, teachers to suit their own passions when he lives in a culture that already embraces that happily. Why doesn't Paul say the time is here that people will not endure sound teaching. They will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves. He can look at the culture and say that that's what, we, as a matter of fact, we would say that of, of ourselves if we were writing scripture. Looking at the landscape of our country even, we would make statements like that. So why is he talking about the time is coming rather than the time is already here? 
Well, Paul rarely writes about non-believers in his letters. He references them. He explains his mission to them. And he defends what he's supposed to say to them. But Paul is not talking about unbelievers in this passage. Paul is saying the time is coming when people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ will no longer want to be a part of it. They won't want to hear it. They're going to have itching ears, as he described it, for they will accumulate themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So itching ears, suiting your own passions, are essentially saying in our day and age, people will leave churches with good doctrine to find churches and situations that prefer their preferences. And some of those preferences will lead people astray. Now, if we look at our day and age, we can say fulfilled. Fulfilled. So I get this. And later on, Paul says, endure suffering. And I get that. Suffering is not something that's joyful. Do you notice you never have to tell people to endure things that are fun, right? When I was a kid, I've always grown up in the D.C. area. When I was a kid, we would go to King's Dominion like once a summer, maybe like once every two years. So it felt like like greater than Christmas. It was like we had King's Dominion and we'd get there just after the King's Dominion opened. And it'd be a few of us. And my mom would always say just to me only be back here at four o'clock. Because I was the only one that definitely wouldn't be back by four o'clock. And I I assume that many of you are not even surprised at that. Be back by four o'clock. And she said, what time did I say? Four o'clock. What time did I say? (laughs) Then she would smack me and then I would go. So four o'clock. I kid you not, as God is my witness. After about two rides, it felt like it was 3.55. So I never came back on time because I was like, we just got here. You know, you don't have to endure King's dominion if you're me because I love it. So when Paul says endure suffering, I get it. I mean, who has anyone here ever confessed you have an idol of getting root canals? Exactly. Because you don't, (laughs) you don't enjoy it, right? Your idols are things that you benefit from. And even though root canals are helpful, it's not like you're like, man, I just, I just really want to get another one. That's just not on the radar. You don't have to endure good things. But when Paul says endure suffering, I get it. But he says in verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Endure sound teaching. Now, those are three words that have puzzled me. Because as a believer, I thought... That's the one thing that I want to have. I never thought that I have to endure sound teaching. Why do I need to endure sound teaching? I mean, don't you go to this church partly because you believe the teaching is faithful to the scriptures. You believe the teaching will help you to grow to be like Christ. And every genuine believer who goes to a a church who really preaches the word Love sound teaching, so why do we have to endure it? 
I endure things that I don't like that are difficult for me. I've never thought of myself as a Christian needing to endure sound teaching. He's saying there are people who will not be able to stay if the teaching is biblical. Endure sound teaching is fundamentally a part of what it means to be a believer. But I'd never thought of it that way. I just thought, yeah, you pick churches and you like churches, you read books about how to live and you read books on doctrine and that's just kind of what we do. But to endure it is something entirely differently. It is a fundamental responsibility. So why does he say that? Well, obviously, some people will not endure that. But why must we endure sound teaching? Now, because of time, I'm just going to give you two reasons why. Two and a half. The last one I'm going to say real quick. Two and a half reasons. The first is what I said to you the last time I was here. Remember when we talked about at the beginning of the message, I talked about John the Baptist. He was in prison and he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? And Jesus tells him, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf have ears. But then he says, blessed are the ones who are not offended because of me. Jesus speaks right to the issue because he knows that John's real issue is that John is offended because John's life does not match up to what John thought it would be. He's in prison for being righteous, so much so that he's even doubting the very sound teaching that he knows to be true. Because he knows, probably at that point in scripture, is the only one who definitively knows who Jesus is. And yet he still says, are you the Messiah or not? Circumstances will challenge the way we process sound teaching. Difficult circumstances, suffering will attack your understanding of God's sovereignty like nothing else. Like nothing else. If you are suffering in the church today... Your understanding and confidence that God loves you, that God knows what he's doing in your life, God's wisdom, all of those things are up for grabs when you suffer. So enduring sound teaching, that's one reason. But there's one that's even more theologically deeper than that. And for this... We'll have to go back in biblical time. Now, I'm going to make an assumption that many of you are familiar with the Genesis account of creation. God creates everything in six days. On the six days, he created man and woman. And he created Adam first in the garden. And he gives Adam a particular prohibition. He says, I've created all of this for you. You can eat from any tree here. The only tree you can't eat from is the knowledge of good and evil. Adam's, okay. That's Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Then it says Eve is created. They're married. Adam was like, whoa, some good work, God. That's a good creation right here. Right? Then we go to Genesis 3. And we know the story. The serpent tempts Eve. But now let's take this sound teaching paradigm and attach it to these six verses in Genesis 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So let's take sound teaching, enduring sound teaching paradigm and apply it right here. First flaw, Eve is not using sound teaching. She's not. When the serpent says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Eve's response is, well, we can eat of the tree in the, in, in the middle of the garden. But we can't, we can eat of all the trees except the one in the middle. Neither shall we touch it lest you die. God didn't tell Adam that though. God just said, don't eat of it. There's no account that says, even if you touch it, you'll die. Now, when God told Adam this, Eve hadn't been created yet. If the, if the, if the account of creation is chronological, which I believe it is, Eve wasn't there. So Adam told Eve this, or Eve may have perceived at some point that even touching the tree would cause death. But that's not what God said. So this is important to realize. Sin comes into the world partly due to a flaw in sound teaching. Now, what is the serpent attack? Do you notice this? We've read this a hundred times. Do you notice the devil never says, aren't you hungry? Doesn't that tree, doesn't that fruit look so good? Do you notice he never says that? He never tempts her with how good the tree looks or how hungry she is. What does he tempt her with? Sound teaching. Listen to what he says. Oh, you will not surely die. Whatever God says is sound teaching. You won't die. So he attacks it. And I think, we don't know this. I think he did that because she already said something that he knew wasn't even a part of it. You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So you will be like God deciding what sound teaching is. This is what happens. He attacks not her hunger. Not how good the fruit looks, but that you can determine good and evil on your own. You will be like God deciding what is sound, what is biblical, what is godly like him. He goes after sound teaching, instruction. We know the story. Eve in verse six. She's the one that tempts herself. Look at this in the verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desired to make one wise, Satan didn't say any of that. He didn't say any of that. He didn't say it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. He did say it would make her wise. She took of its fruit the next. So here she is. Sound teaching. Once it's flawed enough, you tempt yourself. You'll tempt yourself. Verse six is describing Eve's mental process as she tempts herself and she bites the fruit. Give some to Adam. Then sin comes into the world. Now, most of us have heard the definition of the sin nature as pride. I submit to you that that's too broad. It's not helpful personally. The definition of the sin nature we all inherited is the, the, the ability to decide good and evil on our own apart from God. 
So if good and evil is about morality and righteousness, then we divide, we decide good and evil ourselves apart from God. Fundamentally speaking, everyone inherits self-righteousness. We inherit our definitions of good and evil and they play out throughout the scriptures. This battle of whose determination of good and evil will we submit to is what the whole biblical account is. Whole biblical account. And you see three things that immediately come out of Genesis 3. They bite the fruit, their eyes are open, and they sow fig leaves over themselves. So now they're independent. God made them righteous, fine as they were naked. They sow fig leaves on because now they're independent. Their, de- their definition of good and evil has become different from God's. Their definition of sound teaching is different from God's. So independence is something we all inherit. And if time permitted, I would show you why this is so significant to why we struggle with different sins. Because your definition of good and evil might have been like selling and using drugs and shooting guns. No way I would never do that. Well, that was my definition of good and evil allowed for that. Your definition of good and evil might have been something different, but you had one. And it opposed God's. You see independence. And then you see uh, uh, in verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the sound of the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Why doesn't he say I was afraid because you said if I bit from the tree, I would die? Have you ever asked? Why doesn't he say that? That's what you should be afraid of. But what does he say? I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was afraid of how I would be perceived by you and I hid myself. So he's more concerned with how he's perceived than his offense against God. And we all inherit that. It's called fear of man. Well, we're more concerned with how people perceive us than we are how God sees us. That's why people can look like they have great marriages on Sunday and then you find out they might be getting divorced on Thursday. And you're wondering, what happened? Because we'll give the perception of things. We care more about the fear of how we're perceived. And even Adam, we inherited this from Adam. Lastly, we see this. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me. She gave me the tree and I ate. So he blames God, the woman you gave me. So he blames God and he blames Eve. Eve was a little sharper than that. She said it was a serpent. The serpent deceived me. She was sharper than that. She knew better. You don't tell God it's your fault and her fault. I imagine Eve probably looked, saw the look on God's face and was like, nah, I ain't going there. (laughs) It was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. Blame. Blame. Independence, doing our own thing. Fear of perception, and so we blame. It's not my fault. Someone else's fault. These three fundamentals we all inherit from Adam and Eve. And there isn't a person born ever since Adam and Eve that hasn't had these three things implanted in them. And they all constitute unsound teaching. And so what does God do? God tells the serpent... I will put enmity between you, hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the rest of the Bible story from Genesis 3.15 on is who is this he that's going to bruise this heel? 
this head. Who is this he? Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He comes, he lives his life completely dependent on the sound teaching of God. He dies as if he lived according to our definition of sound teaching. And then he says, anyone who believes in me, I'm going to give you my spirit to remind you what the sound teaching of God is. And therefore, the category of temptation we all accept as our definition of good and evil versus God's. And that is the Christian life. And we battle to stick to God's definition of good and evil. And the reason why enduring sound teaching is important is because we've inherited a a, a morality that's immorality. See, if you say, I'm morality, I'm morality, I'm morality, it spells immorality. And this is what happens. This is what we all have. So we all have this idea, and this is where sin comes into the world. So this sound teaching will be hard to endure because it will challenge us to do things that we don't want to do. When you're offended, I don't want to go back and ask for forgiveness because in my mind, you made me angry, but that's the blame part of me. Now, a person may have done something and may reveal that that I was angry. There may be anger that was there that God's showing me, but you didn't make me do anything. That's the blame. That's the blame. Sound teaching says you got to trust God when you're praying for something and years go by and you don't think you've heard yes yet. Sound teaching says, trust the spirit's leading. So like the young girl who came up and said, feel like I heard the Lord say, turn around. So she did. And look what happened as a result of that. Sound teaching is so biblical that one of the fundamental names that Jesus goes by in the Bible is the word of God. The word of God, all the things that Jesus, all the names that he has, John chapter one highlights in the beginning was the word, the sound teaching of God and the word was God and he came among us. Sound teaching became a human being and taught so that people could actually see that, see him in the flesh. God cared so much about sound teaching that he sent his own son to become sound teaching so that we could see that. Then he would die for our sins and forgive us for our unsound teaching and living and then give us his spirit to remind us of what it is. And that's this whole issue with the gospel. So there's no such thing actually as I don't want to read the Bible. Biblically speaking. I mean, God is the word. Sound teaching will challenge us. And it's supposed to. It's supposed to reprove, rebuke, and exhort us. But some people cannot handle that. Lastly, with sound teaching, here's the half. The reason why it's important is in the passage that we read in 2 Timothy 4. It's eternity hinges on sound teaching. Your eternal destination, my eternal destination, hinges on the sound teaching of God's word. Verses 5 through 8. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, which is important words coming from Paul, because anything he's saying that he kept means he knows it's possible to have lost. 
Verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will, the judge will award to me on that day. And guess what? And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Where do we get his appearing from? Sound teaching. Sound teaching. The culture today is attacking sound teaching. Do not be fooled into thinking that the emotion of love is the standard more so than sound teaching because it's actually unloving to approve of or be a part of things that the Bible does not approve of and say you should be a part of. It's not loving. It's not loving. It's unloving. It's dangerous and it's satanic. It's what we inherited from Adam and Eve. And it's why we have a spirit to help us fight. So the scripture says, endure sound teaching, endure suffering, keep the faith. Why? Because the crown of righteousness will be given to all of us. Eternity hinges on sound teaching. Jesus is the word of God. So we read his word to remember how we must live in this world. Amen. Lord, thank you for your mercy and thank you for your grace in giving us your word. Thank you that we endure many things. And so as the church, we transition to pray for the Dietrich family. I thank you that you've given them a heart to endure all of the things that they've heard. They've endured sound teaching. They've endured suffering and many other things. And I pray, Lord, that you would, in your mercy, encourage them today. May their endurance be a legacy to this church and beyond, to their children and beyond. As we are all called by your mercy, by your grace, to endure sound teaching. And we don't have to endure things that are easy. We endure things that challenge us. And so when you challenge us through your spirit, through other believers or through your word, may we endure because our eternity hinges on persevering to the end. Our confession has been made, but may our perseverance be seen for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.